Our guest in this episode has spent two decades traveling to some of the most dangerous and remote areas of the world, masterfully capturing all facets of the human experience. Lindsay Adario is an American photojournalist whose work appears regularly in the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time magazine. She's covered conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Darfur, and the Congo, and has received numerous awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship. In 2009, she was part of the New York Times team that was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting. She's been kidnapped twice, nearly killed, married, and had a son, but still is committed to documenting injustice in the world. Why is she doing it? We'll discuss this and more on the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for making the time for this interview today. I know you're in the midst of a tour for your book of photography titled Of Love and War. I've been fortunate enough to attend two events around the release of this work. How's it going and what's it like revisiting the work you've done over the course of your career? Uh, it's going well. I mean, it's it's um, it's hard, I think, for any journalist or any photographer to sort of pause and then be introspective and talk about oneself. You know, for me, I've spent most of my career running around the world and interviewing other people and, and talking to them about their lives. So, you know, going on book tour basically means pausing and having people ask me those questions. <laughs> and so it's, um, it's emotionally sort of exhausting because I have to revisit a lot of experiences that I don't necessarily, um, you know, I, I, that are, that are difficult things. It, you know, it brings up a lot of trauma and things that I've been through and things that I've witnessed. But I also think it's really important to talk about that stuff. Mm -hmm. What I think adds to this book of photography are the letters, interviews, and essays throughout that share what it took to produce the stories you covered. What made you decide to include more than the images? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been photographing for over 20 years. And for me, so much of you know, my photography stems from the research, the reporting, my my sort of emotional narrative and, and, you know, how I started off and where I've ended up now. And so it is really important and it was really important for me to include some of those old letters to ask journalists that I've worked with over the years to also contribute and to play a part in this book because so much of this work wouldn't have been possible without them and without sort of the the fact that my experiences, you know, and some of those are captured, of course, on camera, but some of them are, are, are things that I've written about and, and written about pretty extensively throughout the years. Yeah, we got a glimpse at the whole process, really, um, which is greatly appreciated because there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of show the unpolished me, you know, I wanted to show it's sort of those tough moments, those moments where I was insecure about where I was going and what I was doing and, and sort of the, the, those sort of very raw moments where I was experiencing things for the very first time. You know, I think now I've, I've traveled to over 70 countries. I've been, you know, I've covered numerous wars and, and it's hard for me to experience something for the first time again. Mm. You just mentioned the word insecurity. In the foreword of this book, you said that for a long time you felt like your photos weren't good enough. And you've also said that you're tortured by your photos. You have many well-deserved <laughs> awards. But if we remove all of the external recognition for a moment, what are you using to judge your work? 
Oh, I'm so miserable when I think about work work because I always focus on what I didn't get and and the places I didn't go or, you know, I woke up sort of in a panic last night because I was in Yemen in September and I woke up in the middle of the night and what I was thinking about were all the images I didn't shoot in Yemen. And it's like, that's the way my brain works. My brain is, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about what I can do better uh, how I can be better photographer and a better journalist. You know, I think it's really important always to be asking a lot of questions, to be pushing myself as much as possible. So, you know, there is a constant insecurity for me. I mean, I, I can't speak for other photographers, but I know for myself that sort of feeds me and that, that really provokes me to keep pushing myself and to do more and more, uh, despite the fact that I've, I've, you know, I've done a lot over the years. I don't, I don't ever believe on like, believe in looking backward. I don't believe in sort of resting on my, you know, past achievements or any awards I've won. I mean, frankly, I think awards, awards are, are, um, I have a difficult time with that recognition because I feel like so many people are doing such incredible work all the time. It's just impossible to recognize everyone fairly. Well, photographer and photojournalist Robert Kappa said, if your pictures aren't good enough, you aren't close enough. And you've been able to gain access to the most hostile environments on the planet and share some people's most vulnerable moments boiled down because I know we can spend a lot of time talking about that, but how do you achieve access to these areas and these moments? You know, you even mentioned the way that your brain works. Like, how do you navigate these situations? You know, I think for me, my philosophy and the way I've gone about it is to just treat everyone with respect and to be very honest with people. So I always go into a situation sort of modestly and I go in, I ask permission, I introduce myself, I explain why I'm there and and, you know, why I would like permission to take people's photographs. And I think people appreciate that. I think I think it's really a lot of it is about the approach. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to people, uh, learning their lives and things that they've been through. And I think that really does help. And I'm sincere. You know, I, I think it's I think people can really recognize uh, when someone is sincere and when someone's being honest. And I think they, you know, they respond to that and they do open up. Um, it's always surprising to me how open people are and how much access I've been given uh, in various situations. It's really shocking to me how people have just really opened their lives to me on so many different levels. For listeners who might not be so familiar with your work, I just want to also point out that oftentimes you have language barriers that you have to overcome in these situations, and you're actually reading people's body language. That's incredible that you're able to achieve that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so much of my work is in the Middle East, uh, all over Africa. So people are often speaking Arabic, Swahili, um, all different dialects across Africa. And, and I think, you know, for me, it is really about reading people's body language and understanding boundaries. You know, I think the more I work in a country, obviously, the more I become familiar with what's possible, what's not possible, and what, you know, how to approach people. But that first time is always very difficult. Um, so I do rely on local translators, local journalists um, to help me. Um, but I also have to rely on my instinct a lot, which I think is a really it's really important to sort of be able to trust my instinct and to be able to listen to that. Speaking of your your instinct, you've been kidnapped, shot at and at times told that you could not share your photos. 
When have you questioned your decision to pursue a story and how far into it did you start to second guess that decision? You know, every assignment is so different. Um, so I think it, it's hard to speak when I talk about, you know, when we talk about risk or navigating risk or navigating how far to go forward or how long to stay. It's really every story I, I have to approach with such an individual approach because, you know, the people are different, the risks are different. Uh, so I think, you know, in the case of Libya, for example, where I was um, kidnapped and held for a week with three other colleagues for the New York Times, that was a situation where I was out of my comfort zone, but I had already surpassed what I felt was a comfortable, you know, I, I thought that it was too dangerous and that it was time for us to leave. That said, you know, I was in a car full of colleagues. And so one rule that we all have, don't leave colleagues behind. And I think in that situation, I chose to sort of remain quiet and let my colleagues dictate how long we stayed. Um, you know, I think, what happened happened. I mean, we we're all responsible, of course, for what happened in Libya and, and the fact that our driver ultimately was killed. But for me, it was a it was a very particular time where I felt like we were staying too long. I felt like the front line was approaching very quickly. Uh, we needed to pull back and we just didn't pull back as quickly as I would have wanted to. And then how to have you overcome that that decision? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with how to process that. You know, the the thing that, you know, I survived, me and my colleagues survived, our driver did not. And so that's really uh, where, you know, for me personally, I had to focus working through that. You know, I mean, we when we were in captivity, we were blindfolded, tied up, beaten up. Uh, for me as a woman, I was groped repeatedly. We were all threatened with execution over and over. Uh, it went on for about a week. And I think... You know, okay, that is traumatic. There's no question. And each one of us has dealt with that trauma in a very different way. But I think when I, when I walk away or when I step back from what happened to us in Libya, the real toll that that experience took was the fact that our driver was killed. Then that is something that we are responsible for because he was working with us. He was, he felt like it was time to leave and we didn't leave at that point. So really that process is something separate. That's something mm -hmm. that uh, each one of us has to deal with and process. And for me personally, um, it has a lot to do with speaking to people, um, you know, sort of actively working through what happened that day. Um, and so that's sort of my own way of dealing with it. In October 2018, during a book signing in Brooklyn that I attended, I forget the details of the assignment you were discussing, but you said that covering happiness was tough for you. Why do you think you process trauma so well and what makes you keep going back to cover injustices? You know, it's a question I get often because I think a lot of people can't understand why some people have PTSD and some people... Um, are more resilient and, and are able to sort of deal with uh, experiences on a different level. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I do know that I've spoken to a lot of people and people who have researched the topic. And, and one thing that it is sort of uh, in consensus is that people who come from a very solid upbringing, a loving family, a sense of community are often better equipped to handle trauma. And so I do know that my upbringing was incredibly loving and supportive and you know, nurturing and, and very empowering. And so for me personally, I think that that has helped me a lot 
to deal with everything that I've been through over the years. Um, I know that um, I also very actively uh, sort of deal with what's happening in the moment. So I'm not sort of trying to pretend that something didn't happen. I'm not tucking it away immediately into a remote corner of my brain. I'm actively dealing with it, talking about it, talking to my friends, talking to my colleagues, uh, my editors. You know, that's very important for me. You're very open about your relationship with your family and how strong those relationships are. I have to say, I do follow you on Instagram, and when you post stories about your grandmother, they are heartwarming. (laughs) (laughs) So in your memoir, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War, you vividly illustrate how you learned to balance your personal life and career. What are some valuable lessons you've learned in terms of balancing your life? I mean, look, I don't... I think it's very difficult to have it all, especially if you're a woman, I would say. Um, I think that, you know, when young people, young photographers ask me, you know, how do I get that balance? Uh, You know, I think it's impossible when you're starting your career to be able to have a personal life and to be able to prove yourself as a photographer. I think in those early years, it's all about work. It's all about getting out there, being in the right place going to the story, committing yourself 100% to the work. You know, at a certain point, of course, once you've um, established your name and have editors who who are familiar with with your work, there is a little more leeway to start to have a personal balance. But I certainly think in those early years, it's really about getting out there and working, you know, and maybe that means there is no personal life in the beginning. Um, You know, now I'm very lucky because I have a very supportive husband um, and he's home often with our son and I'm out in the field a lot. And I, I think that's not a common situation. I think that I'm, I'm very lucky to have that. And your husband is also in the industry and understands the demands and the mindset, I would think. Yes, he was a he was a journalist for uh, many years. Now he's no longer a journalist now, but he certainly was. He understands sort of the the rigors and the demands of the job and the importance of of timeliness and the importance of getting there as quickly as possible. When you look at your work and question why you're the person who's able to cover all these significant stories, what answer do you land on? Do you think it was your upbringing? Is it your gender? Uh, I don't think it's exclusively me who's able to cover these stories. I think these are the stories that I choose to cover. You know, one of the reasons why I've remained freelance over the years, um, I've worked most of my career for the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time, but one of the reasons why I've never gone staff anywhere is because I wanted that freedom to be able to choose where I go, the stories I cover. And so I think there are so many people who are capable of covering these same stories. Um, For me personally, I think, you know, I've been able to cover these stories because I take my time. I get to know people. I'm patient. Um, You know, I wait until I sense that that they feel comfortable with me. I came from a very non-judgmental family. I think that that really helps, um, you know, being able to walk in and out of people's lives, many of whom were marginalized in their own society or, or who are marginalized. Um, and they can sense that I'm not judgmental and that I'm really there to just tell their story. 
Just before Of Love and War was published, I attended your Times talk, and the Leadership Under Fire founder and president, Jason Bresler, told me I should introduce myself to you. So when they opened the discussion to the audience for a QA, and a I had to stand up and speak up. And the question I asked you then, and I post to you again now, um, what are some qualities of leaders you have noted during your experience covering times of great need? Well, I think the qualities of leaders is really making people feel included, listening, being a very good listener, um, being patient, but also being firm, um, you know, having integrity. I think integrity is, is number one. You know, it's really important um, no matter what sort of line of work you're in or who you are to have integrity. Um, you know, that's something that, um, and, and honesty too, you know, I think both of those qualities are really, really important in, in a leader. Um, and so, yeah, I think Jason Bresler and I come from very different backgrounds and yet I was, um, you know, I was, I was embedded with his Marines twice in, in Southern Afghanistan and, and I found him an incredible leader. You know, I think he was, he was great. And so, you know, I think the qualities of leadership depend on sort of the arena you're working in, but there are certain qualities that, that sort of all leaders should have. Um, I'm going to walk a fine line between personal and professional and let you know that my background is in news. Before I started working for the FDNY, I was a reporter for a 24-hour television news station in New York City, and I was general assignment. So every day was different. Every moment of every day was different. And when I first met Jason, I was assigned to cover something with him, and we had to cultivate trust. You know, there was definitely a moment of back and forth, you know, each of us trying to control the situation. And, you know, fast forward to where we are now, it's kind of interesting to see where we've we've landed. Um, but all that being said, I, I really appreciate the fact that you've shared your journey in terms of honing your craft. You talked about at one point uh, going from film to digital. Do you think being able yep. to go to digital helped you grow as a photographer? Well, I guess in the sense that it's possible to sort of see what I'm shooting in the moment, you know, so I can tell if I'm getting the images or not. I think, you know, it also, because there's no cost of film, you know, when I made that transition, it was at a point where I wasn't earning a lot of money at all. And I, and I couldn't afford a lot of film and to process the film. So going digital allowed me, enabled me to be able to shoot more uh, without worrying about the cost so much. So I think in that sense, maybe it helped make me a better photographer. But I think ultimately what makes someone a better photographer is, is really consistently being out there shooting and telling stories and then also having good editors and mentors and having good feedback um, because it's really about being open to that criticism and to learning how to, to, to continue learning, you know, not to get to a point where one feels, well, I think I'm, you know, I'm there. You know, for me, it's really always about getting that feedback from people around me and having great editors who, who helped me, you know, push myself. Yeah, who were some of those people who influenced you the most? So um, there are, my first sort of mentor was Bibito Matthews at the Associated Press. He was both a photographer and an editor, and he became a mentor to me. And he sort of just helped me learn how to see. 
Um, and that was sort of in New York in the nineties. And then throughout the years, I've had all so many different mentors, um, you know, at the New York times, Michelle McNally, Kira Pollack. Um, she was at the New York times magazine and then was, uh, editor of time magazine. Kathy Ryan, um, is probably my most consistent, you know, the person I've worked with most consistently throughout my career, uh, for 18 years. Uh, she's been an editor of mine at the New York times magazine and, you know, she always, always challenges, uh, you know, what I'm shooting, how I'm seeing, how I tell a story. So I think, you know, those are just some of the many people who have really been instrumental in helping me, um, you know, be the photographer I am. And then what about your relationship with the reporters that you've been able to work with as well? I mean, and that's huge. You know, I think the reporters I work with, um, uh, it's, it's they're fundamental to every story. I mean, you know, we go into things as a team and it's really important that, you know, they see things sometimes that I don't see. I see things they don't see. Um, you know, we have to, we have to talk through everything we're seeing and make sure that we have the similar level of risk that we're willing to take. Um, you know, that, we keep each other in check in terms of the reporting we're doing. I think it's, you know, you can never under, underestimate how important that photographer-journalist relationship is. And then in terms of your your role in telling these stories, uh, you've talked about that being a woman actually became a strength. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think, you know, people ironically always assume that it's it's, um, it's sort of a hindrance or a drawback to be a woman in the field. And, you know, for me, I think the opposite. I, I Most of my career has been in the Muslim world, so I have access to men and women. And I think a lot of times, ironically, people underestimate women. And so I'm able and I have been able to move around sort of under the radar in a lot of these places where photography and journalism is very sensitive. So I think those are all sort of things that have helped me. Um, I think that in in delicate situations, people tend to let women in a little more or uh, trust them a bit more. I'm often invited into family homes. Um, you know, for me, obviously, I've never been a man, so I can't, I have no concept of what my career would have been like had I been born a man. But I think for me, I've never, the, the only sort of issues I've had uh, as a woman have really arisen from my physical strength and making sure that I'm able to sort of keep up with men when I'm doing military embeds, for example, um, and and getting into places that are exclusively open to men, like in certain very conservative countries, uh, like mosques or places where only men go. What is your uh, physical regimen in terms of preparing for your work? Because obviously that's a component. You have to be physically fit to do your job. Yeah. Um, well, I work out like at least an hour a day. Um, usually now my regime has changed because I have really bad back problems, as most photographers do. Um, so I'm doing uh, now I do an hour of reformer Pilates, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's um, it's incredible for sort of the smaller muscles and core and, and really holding sort of my spine in place. And then um, on the days that I don't do that, I'm doing uh, cardio for about 45 minutes. But the reformer Pilates really helps in terms of resistance training and stuff. Um, but in the, in the days when I was doing a lot of military embeds, it was usually about an hour of um, cardio a day. I was running a lot. And then I would do some weight training as well and sit-ups. 
you know, when you look back at all the things you've sort of, all the adversity you've overcome, how does it feel to look at, at your accomplishments? I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't really do that. I don't sort of look back and say like, wow, I've accomplished a lot. I, I'm always sort of looking forward and I'm always looking at, at, at what, what more I can do. You know, I think for me, it's, um, you know, that's sort of how I'm wired. And I, and I, and I rarely sort of look back and look back at my accomplishments. I mean, I think when there's, you know, I, um, in the last few years, I've been, I've been, uh, given two honorary doctorate degrees. And I think for me, that's so exciting because I was raised in a family of hairdressers and, you know, my parents never went to college and only one sister out of four of us had gone to college when I went, um, you know, the, the oldest sister has since graduated, but I think, you know, so that was, that was sort of an accomplishment that was very unexpected and, and a real great honor to me as was the MacArthur and, mm-hmm. and of course being in, in part of the New York times Pulitzer prize team. But, you know, I, I'm always thinking about, okay, well, you know, I need to do more. I need to, I need to keep moving forward because I don't want, you know, I'm 45 and I feel like I'm at the peak of my career. Mm-hmm. Jason Bresler, who, by the way, listeners will have on this podcast at some point, once said to me about himself, my contentment is generally short lived. And I thought that was so powerful and so accurate about certain people's mindsets. So it speaks to what you're saying here. You just have this book published, but what's next? Um, so, uh, well, it's about to be Christmas, so I'm going to go home and <laughs> I can't wait to relax Okay, for a that's while. the work-life balance <laughs> And then, um, and then I already have a few, I've been working on a few long-term stories, um, that I need to wrap up in January. Um, so already I have two pretty big shoots lined up in January and then I'm about to start another, um, New York, I'm about to start another, uh, National Geographic story actually, which I can't really say what it is, but it has to do with, uh, women. Okay. Sure. We're all very excited about that. Um, (laughs) so, you know, when I was reporting in the field, we had to shoot, interview, write, and edit all of our own pieces. And in terms of back problems, yes, most of my colleagues and I have some issues. So I really appreciate, again, the fact that you've honed your craft and also overcome some physical challenges. But then there's also, you know, the the mental and the emotional and the moral uh, rigors that you have to go through in order to do your work. You're an extraordinary person with an understanding of the wider world. You've been supportive of Leadership Under Fire. So I have to ask, what do you think makes Leadership Under Fire stand out and important? I think what makes it um, stand out and important is to really give people a forum um, to listen to people and to learn and to share ideas about navigating risk and being out there. You know, it doesn't matter that we all come from such different backgrounds and that we're all presented with different forms of risk and different forms of challenges. I think what's important is how we navigate them and how we move forward. And so I do think it's really cool and really important to have that sort of, um, to have that sort of environment and a place, a forum where we can talk about those things and learn from each other. So you've been on this book tour and again, talking to so many different people about so many different topics. Is there anything you want to talk about here today or go over? 
I don't know. I think people, I think, I think what's important, you know, especially about my new book and, and what I want people to take away is that, you know, often people look at photographs and, and they take images for granted, you know, whether it's the amount of information they receive from photographs on a daily basis or how they learn about the world through photographs. You know, I think often people forget to look at and to think about the person behind the camera. You know, there is an entire process going on there as well. I mean, that is one of the reasons also why I included those old letters and 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 um, journals. And I think it's it's important, I think, for as a takeaway to people, you know, stop for a minute when you see a photo that is powerful and, and, and engage with it and ask yourself questions, you know. And I think also... Um, you know, take the time to read about the backstory of certain things. I think it's really important also and, and pretty enlightening. Right. I mean, what is your, your mission with your work? You, you cover all these injustices. What is your goal by doing so? I want people, you know, I want people to learn. I want them to, to do something if they, if they have the tools, if they have the power to do something. I want people to be, you know, to have perspective about the rest of the world. Um, you know, I think it's very, it's very common for all of us to sort of get complacent in our, in our safe place and to, you know, to be consumed with our lives. It only makes sense. But every so often, I think it's really important to, to have perspective about how most of the people in the rest of the world live, um, you know, and if it's possible to do something to affect change, then do it. You've been asked this question, I think, every time I've seen you out and about talking to people is what advice would you give uh, up and coming or aspiring photographers or photojournalists? I think it's important to, you know, identify what is interesting to you, what stories you want to tell, um, you know, and to get out there and do it and to get out of your comfort zone a little bit, challenge yourself. I think that it's all, you know, all those things are pretty important. It's, it's, um, it's easy to, to sort of say, I want to be a photographer for National Geographic and then sort of wait for someone to come with you with that dream assignment. Well, that's not really going to happen. You know, I mean, you have to go out there and prove yourself and show people that you can do that. And when you say prove yourself, you know, what are you saying? Are you, are you talking about maintaining a level of professionalism? Are you talking about pushing everything. the boundaries? I mean, I mean, I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about maintaining a level of professionalism, being a good, honest journalist, getting the facts straight, making sure captions are accurate, making sure you can take a photograph, making sure the light's good, the information is in the photograph, that you're you're, you can make your own travel plans, that you can hold yourself under fire, that you can, you know, you know how to navigate tricky situations, that, you know, there's so much that goes into this work. And very, very little of that is taking a photograph. Right. And how would you um, advise people to collect themselves and, and be able to navigate all of those different facets of the work? I think it's a lot of it has to do with experience. Um, a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, getting out there and also learning from the people around you. I mean, that's the other thing is that you have to, you know, you have to, you have to really sort of be open and, and have people around you who can teach you because it, it is one of those jobs where you can still learn from people who have come before you. You know, you can go to school, but there's nothing that'll substitute sort of being out there on the job. And you really took uh, a big leap early in your career and really showed a 
great confidence in terms of getting out there, which thank you for, for your professionalism and, and your courageousness for, for doing something like that. Well, you're <laughs> <laughs> Really, when I look back at, at you and your work and, and the fact that you've shared your journey so into, it seems so intimate, you know, the way that you've shared it with the letters and the essays and the emails and your memoir, you know, the word that comes to mind to me is gratitude. You know, this is really important work that you've done. And, um, thank you. you Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. That's so nice. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I also feel like, you know, on a, on a separate note, I feel like, you know, I've spent my whole life, you know, in people's most intimate spaces and moments. And so I do owe it to people to sort of share a piece of myself. You know, I do think if it can help people in any way, if it can help young women or young photographers, then I'm happy to do that. I think that's, in my opinion, a way that you're able to to capture so many aspects of the human experience. You know, you really are in touch with humanity overall, which yeah. is, is key. And also, well, you have you. an excellent sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely have an infectious laugh every time I've seen you speak at an event. If you smile, you beam, which is a nice way, I think, maybe oh. to wrap up this conversation is the fact that you really, for all of the traumatic uh, things that you've seen and the dangerous situations you've been in, you also have a, a level of, I would say, optimism and a sense of humor that uh, I think adds to your resilience. Yeah, I mean, I think it is important to be to have a sense of humor, you know, because at the end of the day, that's what can keep us all going. And so many of the people I photograph in the darkest situations and in the toughest situations, they have a sense of humor, you know, so how can we not, you know, they have hope, they have optimism, they make jokes about and even, you know, even things that you wouldn't dream of making jokes about, they do. And and I think that's an important thing that helps get people through tragedy. Right. It's an important aspect of survival. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I know you're super busy, so, you know, if, if no, any... No, <laughs> thanks. And we'd love to have you on again at some point, so... Yeah, thank you so much. Let me know if there's anything else. Excellent. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF. More at ConwayShield.com. Hey, listeners, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. The Leadership Under Fire team is excited to share that the 2019 National Optimizing Human Performance Summit will take place in Annapolis, Maryland, March 29th through 30th. This event, aimed at building your anchor, We'll explore resilience at the individual, team, and organizational levels, as well as from the tactical, mental, and moral perspectives. Summit speakers and panelists include Jen Baker, Senior Associate Athletics Director at John Hopkins University, Brendan Cauley of the FDNY, Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, 
the authors of the New York Times bestseller Indianapolis, former U.S. Navy SEAL and functional fitness trainer Stu Smith, and more. Participants will collaborate in small groups with LUF advisors, plus have a chance to participate in a functional fitness workout. Registration is limited, so act fast. For more information, visit our website or email contact at leadershipunderfire.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.